I mentioned that I spent the a couple days in the woods up by you, and I had an interesting experience because my temporary landlord is a very chill older guy. He came by to drop off some coffee, and he mentioned that he actually likes being paid for like little things where he would take cash with Bitcoin. He just casually brought this up while he's talking to you. Did he realize you're the Bitcoin dad? Well, I don't know because I was wearing my Bitcoin dad pod sweatshirt. So maybe that had clued him in because he saw the Bitcoin logo. <laughs> yeah, probably. We were chatting about that. And what's interesting was his he's using Cash App, so he doesn't have his own wallet. But he had heard about Bitcoin. He thought, hey, digital money, you know, that would be great because... I do. He does this like Verbo, Airbnb type stuff. And going through the platform is really expensive because they take all these fees. So he uses the platforms basically for marketing. And then once you stay there, there's this little card on the table that you take with you that's got his phone number. And then you can set it up with with him directly for cheaper and just pay cash. But he mentioned that Bitcoin is, is kind of useful because I think maybe there was a situation where someone sent him some Bitcoin on Cash App and that was... Like he was like, oh, that that was like taking a credit card. But he knew nothing about it. Like he didn't know anything about how it works or, or anything. He just for him, it just worked. Yeah, that is where I see it ultimately. And it's going to be an awkward thing for a lot of us because, uh, you know, Cash App is the custody of his keys in that situation. Um, but if you think about it, a lot of people have just made peace with the bank keeping their money and they have to go and ask for their money from the bank. PayPal holds on to your money. You have to essentially ask PayPal to get your money out. I think people have made peace with not not having their own keys in a sense, even though I think it's one of the best things about Bitcoin and it's something I'll always take advantage of. So I think as we just see these really user-friendly applications roll out, that's just something we're going to struggle with. Agreed. I think also in venture capital and startup culture, they call this customer training. So I think that most people in the developed world today have been trained to be comfortable with third parties custodying their assets. So breaking away from that model and getting people familiar with the idea that something digital can be custodied the same way you can custody cash, that'll take some time. But I see this as a cool sign of grassroots adoption. We should probably introduce the show. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded Saturday, May 21st, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here with... Me, Chris. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 18. We're recording a day late because living on the road is a means that sometimes your house isn't where you think it is or should be. It's a dynamic lifestyle, you could say. But this was an interesting week because I feel like the news was just swarmed with postmortems of Luna and impending regulation as a result of Luna's spectacular failure. But nothing's actually happened yet, in my opinion. So I thought we might completely ignore it. What do you think, Chris? I'm fine with that. I've heard so many different opinions uh, on why Luna did or didn't, uh, you know, should or shouldn't and all this stuff. I'm done with it. I think, you know, honestly, I think we were done with it a week before it crashed. <laughs> we called when we called the DPEG was coming and that this was a, a an inevitable problem. Just wasn't really clear at the time how soon it was going to land. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people were shocked. And that's why we see so much discussion still. But you're right. There's nothing much new in it other than we could 
could spend probably the entire episode going through all of Doquan's shenanigans, which have been record-setting shenanigans, all kinds of ridiculous new proposals, overriding the community, then taking stuff back that he said they could have. Uh, just an unbelievable breakdown of a community. It's been remarkable, but nothing really all that note will show it. I think that you shared a YouTube video, I've forgotten which one, where the host refers to it as ship coins because ship coin won't get you banned or flagged as adult using YouTube's algorithm. So I wonder if a meme we could like borrow. It. I also like sheep coin, you know, it's like because everybody is sheeps and they just buy in sheep coin. Or is that too mean? I don't know. I just wonder if our language, if like if we develop this sort of way of talking about them, we might sound too strange for newcomers. So maybe we should just continue with altcoins. Yeah, maybe altcoins is right because it's it's um, I've heard it. I've heard people describe it as, well, it sounds like you're just dis dismissing them without even understanding them. And I, I completely can understand that perspective. I think and the reason why we call them such a, you know, a nasty name is because the legitimate fact is, unfortunately, and I hate to say it, 95% of them are just absolute crap scams. And it isn't just it isn't just like us being dismissive. It's coming to an understanding of how these things are built the technologies they're based on, communities and the leadership behind them, and then understanding the implications of all of that uh, is why is why they get labeled uh, as S-coins. Um, but you're right. I think when you're new and you don't understand all of that context, it sounds like, you know, a bunch of Bitcoin cultists that are just refusing to understand it. Right. And I think that we've sufficiently violated the laws of Bitcoin philosophical purity by, for instance, interviewing Seth for privacy, who's a Monero advocate. I would say Seth is actually a Bitcoiner, but Monero has at least temporarily solved many of the privacy problems with Bitcoin. And so Seth thinks that that's very useful. And I have to agree. If I needed to do something private using cryptocurrency, Monero, that's the way I would do it. I don't disagree with that either, actually. I think that I I wondered years ago if we would have a world where Bitcoin was the store of value and Monero was sort of your daily spend money. Now, it seems like lightning and, you know, just dealing in sats is kind of solving that for most of us. But I love the idea of privacy first. And I do also, like you, think eventually a lot of the, the biggest, most important innovations of Monero will be incorporated into Bitcoin. You just look at some of the BIPs that are out there right now, and it's already going that direction. So that is going to be good, right? But it's not um, it's not here today. And it's not ideal in the sense that it's an after the fact thing and not, you know, from first principle. So I, I, I would have loved to have seen a version of reality, right? Like one of the one of the alternate realities where Monero was like your daily spending money. And I think this brings us to privacy news very neatly. So one thing that I really enjoyed this week was the arrival of Janine's latest this month in Bitcoin privacy. But it was actually a two-month issue. So there was quite a lot in there. And I think it's really worth a read, even if you're not particularly interested in Bitcoin, because they really there seems to be an upswell in interest in financial surveillance. And I think that cryptocurrencies are sort of the excuse. But frankly, cryptocurrencies are just so small as a market. I mean, we're talking about a $2 trillion market when the bond market is arguably $200 trillion, so 100 times larger. The stock market is, what, $50 trillion, so again, almost 50 times larger. And But cryptocurrencies are perceived currently 
I think, in the popular imagination as something shady. And so it's a good excuse, like Save the Children, to uh, surveil people. And frankly, I think that the real goal is basically breaking down any sort of personal privacy to the point where if you control the levers of government, it's very difficult for people to organize against you because there's no privacy. I think that's that's my tinfoil hat, but I don't think that's really so paranoid because I think that's kind of the arc of history. It seems to be pretty obvious to me. Well, and uh, one of the things that she does very well in this summary is the Committee on Digital Assets and Illicit Finance. She breaks down um, a testimony in there, which I think actually illustrates exactly what you're talking about. And it's In fact, th the argument now goes, you know, cryptocurrencies lend themselves so well to surveillance that I believe government should embrace this technology and integrate it into your surveillance regime, um, and while also making the case that it's very, very low illicit activity on cryptocurrency. It's it's an interesting juxtaposition of logic where the testimony from the witness is, here is the report. As you can see, there is a very low amount of illicit activity, as they say. But all that aside, you know, it's less than 1% of transactions, but we can see all of them. So why not just build it into your surveillance system? Like, it's a weird thing where it's very low in actual activity, but because it's so easy to surveil it, they're going to just spend all the resources on it anyway. Yeah. And I think that this is sort of a bit of overflow from our non-existent economic section this week. The fiscal and monetary position of most countries today is so bad that the only way forward that most central banks and politicians who understand a bit about the sort of financial crisis that's looming over their heads like the sword of Damocles is that if you don't control inflation, but also suppress interest rates so as to basically inflate away government debt, then we're going to have a serious financial crisis with serious inflation. And this will essentially result in a new political consensus. And so all of the geriatric rulers today who sleepwalked us into this situation they'll be replaced. To remain in power, they need to basically have the fiscal side of government, the government spending side, unite with the central bank and create an environment where inflation is sort of moderate high, you know, let's say around 5%, and then maintain that for 10 to 15 years. Because in that environment with 5% inflation, if they can keep government debt payments to under 5%, you know, ideally around 1%, then over time, the government debt just gets smaller and smaller as a relative to GDP because 5% inflation means that GDP is increasing at at least 5% because basically all prices are going up at least 5%. Well, how do you do that? Obviously, this means abusing people's savings. And like we said before, money is like water. It flows downhill. It flows to where it's treated best. So they need to close the dams. They need to lock people in to their their current holdings. You know, you, you can't be allowed to sell out of a stock market that's underperforming and get into Bitcoin because that would actually destabilize this very careful equilibrium of financial repression. And so financial surveillance is is key for this to succeed, I think. I think that's extremely 
insightful. That's exactly the situation we find ourselves in. And that's why when I look at what I can do to preserve whatever earnings I might actually have, when I do the math, it's Bitcoin because I'm looking at something that needs to survive 15 years, right? Where where I could sit on something 10, 15 years because we are in for a long haul here. Completely. And I think we mentioned this last week, but Bitcoiners have touted the Bitcoin is digital gold narrative. Bitcoin is a store of value. And frankly, I think that narrative is sometimes hard to see when Bitcoin falls in value 50 percent. You know, people just focus on that fall and they don't zoom out and say, oh, well, it's up, you know, 300 percent over, you know, two years or three years or four years or whatever. So what I think might help people see the value proposition is that Bitcoin can't be seized once you have it on your own wallet. And so I think that anti-seizure, the way that, yeah, you could be banned from the banking system, you could be banned from exchanges, but you could still have your savings in Bitcoin and no one can interfere with those. I think that that is really going to be important in a world of increasing financial repression. Yeah, that's definitely going to play a factor. I was in Southern Oregon and I was sitting in at a repair shop, spent an entire day just sitting in the shop and other RVers were coming and going. They're having their rigs worked on. And a group of them set up at a table and it was it was kind of heartbreaking to listen to because they are retired and they don't quite make their monthly payments with their retirement check. Like their monthly costs are $1,000 a month and they make $900 retirement. And they had savings accounts and CDs and and some investments that they were basically earning profit on and using that to cover the $100 short that they had. And now all of that's gone away with the change in the Federal Reserve monetary policy. And they don't have any idea what's unfolding. They they All they know is that they were making a, a certain yield on these investments, and now they're not. And they don't know why why things cost more. They don't understand why they're paying so much for gas. They don't, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. Oh man, I mean, just thinking about it now, it, it just makes me so sad because they just, they're used to a world that's existed for the last 40, 50 years, and no one's told them that everything is shifting from underneath them and that we are going into a new era with a different monetary policy and a different macroeconomic environment. And what worked before isn't necessarily going to work for the next 10 years. And but, but nobody's telling them this. Yeah, it's difficult because a lot of things have changed and it's quite complicated. And to to sort of intellectually engage with the scale of change in the past 40 years, I think that you you have to kind of completely uproot your understanding of the world. And for a lot of people, that's a that's like tearing apart their identity or something. For instance, I know quite a few people who are a bit older than me who are really, really married to this idea that America is good. And, you know, I don't want to sound like a Debbie Downer, but the United States of America has many good things about it. And it's also has many terrible things about it. And if you have tied your identity to this idea of being part of this sort of city on a hill, idealized nation, then it's going to be very difficult for you to embrace the complexities of the real world and what's really happening. And I am, unfortunately, if you don't know what world you're in and you believe things that are false, then people are going to be able to take your money very easily. And I think that is sort of what's happening with the whole altcoin phenomenon, because, you know, Terra, it was a stable coin that wasn't stable. Right. It's so funny. That's exactly what I was just going to say, is it, it makes me think about the altcoin ecosystem. And I, I think 
this current bear market that we are in right now as we record, which is late May 2022, Bitcoin has remained fairly strong. You know, we are we just we are in a, we are in a sideways price action. Then we get bad news. It goes down a bit. But altcoins, especially altcoins pegged to Bitcoin are are just getting absolutely devastated. And Bitcoin's dominance during this down market is increasing uh, pretty health. And it sort of reaffirmed a lot of the things that we've talked about and a lot of the things that Bitcoin maximalists talk about. And it's made me consider that maybe Ethereum will crash one day. Maybe we're going to have a house of cards situation with Ethereum because it's so many layers on top of layers. And I've kind of I don't know. I, I guess I figured we were I, I think I'd come to accept that we are just moving into a Bitcoin Ethereum world. And now I think maybe we're going to move into a world where one day Ethereum explodes and it takes out a huge piece of Bitcoin with it. Temporarily, because we're still pretty early. These are all small markets. They're all interconnected simply because a lot of people own Ethereum and Bitcoin. But, you know, what? one thing that's great about a decentralized network is terrible things can happen. Bank runs can happen. It doesn't destabilize the network. Institutions might fail and people might get wrecked, but what they're doing doesn't affect my wallet or your wallet. So I think that's kind of, again, in the volatility in crisis, I believe that this is where the robustness, the anti-fragility of Bitcoin shines. And I'm not wishing catastrophe. I just think catastrophe is highly likely and I'm planning it into my, my portfolio, my financial plan, my future. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe it's getting to the point where it'll become too big to fail and they'll just reverse things and fork it and everyone will be okay with it because it saves their investment. That could be a possibility, too. They've already done it once. Yeah, exactly. I just I've been thinking about that. I think Vitalik himself has has said things publicly recently that have me sort of thinking, boy, maybe there's something bigger going on. Or maybe there's maybe he's having some sort of doubt, something. I don't know. But on my mind, just been on my mind during this downturn. Yeah, we're definitely mixing together privacy and tokenomics because Vitalik is kind of the story in to tokenomics this week because he has a he had a blog post which kind of reads like a cry for help. I think um, some people were saying, hey, looks like Vitalik's eyeing the exit. I think that's exactly what it read like. And it, it he goes through and posts many things that uh, alarm me. Um, he 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 kind of essentially says in there that he would prefer to align with authority and uh, he tends to agree more with the authority decisions than he does with the voice of the people, which is pretty disturbing from a supposedly decentralized currency. Um, I, yeah, yeah, I find that very alarming. And then you also combine that with his blog post on April Fool's that seem almost like he kind of grokked. The Bitcoin culture and almost seemed to admire a lot of what it stood for and felt like it was an important project. Almost like, you know, I don't know, like like he's maybe ready to retire. I, that sounds crazy. I don't I just when you read when you combine his his April Fool's post with the seeming cry for help on Twitter, that's I don't know how many how many messages deep it is, but it's a whole thread. And each one is an alarming, alarming uh, conflict that he seems to be struggling. Right. So the summary is that Vitalik's April 1st post was titled In Defense of Bitcoin Maximalism, where he basically describes how Ethereum believers have characterized Bitcoiners as toxic and hostile and anti-progress. But actually, that's not true. Bitcoiners are great. They have principles. They are focusing on decentralization. They are intolerant of scams. And this is all fantastic. And I wish Ethereum could be more that way because we all have to the we here is Ethereans. The Ethereans all feel a pressure to hold hands and sing Kumbaya, and they're holding hands with, you know, Justin Sun and Do Kwan and a whole bunch of other really 
really cynical scammers who are just there to grab money. I mean, the Quadriga CX, one of the founders, I forget his name, Michael something, he was involved in the Ethereum, was it Ethereum-based, this Wonderland project, which was a straight-up Ponzi scheme. And he was involved in that as a NIM, and people knew, but, you know, hey, Ethereum, maybe he's changed. Oh, wait, no, the Ponzi blew up. Everyone lost their money. Yeah, I'm sorry. This is my fault. You got me on this whole altcoin thing uh, when we're talking privacy. But when you bring it back to, you look at the Bitcoin improvements that are out there, the, the proposals, and you look at some of the things they're doing to address privacy. I don't buy, with Vitalik at least involved in the project, that this is ever going to be a focus that they'll, they'll truly actually execute. I, it seems to me, if you read that Twitter thread, he's actually more than happy to just work with institutions and the authority figures to probably bake in surveillance tools for them. I don't understand, I guess, why the privacy conversation isn't stronger with the Ethereum community. It seems to be just something that's gone to the wayside. Well, it's interesting. Ethereum only has one privacy service, as far as I know, called Tornado Cash. And it's used for scammers who, once they steal a bunch of Ethereum or collapse a Ponzi, they throw their funds into Tornado Cash on their way out. So it's it's amusing that that's like the main use of privacy in Ethereum is kind of cleaning scammer funds, whereas that doesn't <laughs> seem to be the case in Bitcoin. No one says it that it's just criminals coin joining in Bitcoin. That it like even Neutrino, the Coinbase surveillance company, says that. I think that's why a culture of privacy is important. And I think that's something Monero got right from the start. It's something Bitcoin definitely considers, but it hasn't been a core focus, but it's, you know, they're working on it. And then on the far other end of the spectrum, I think you have Ethereum and all the Ethereum based stuff that is is way over on the uh, wrong side of the privacy spectrum. Not as maybe not as bad as like a CBDC or something like that. But, <laughs> you know, it's in sniffing range. Oh, totally. So before we put Vitalik to rest, what I think is interesting about Vitalik's latest change of heart is that this comes right before the so-called switch to proof of stake. And our other tokenomics piece of news is an article by Tomer Strolight, which is entitled The Problem with Ethereum. He actually has two of these articles, but I think we've linked to the first one. You can find the second one in the bottom. And it's interesting because it looks at Ethereum as a problem of class structure, that there are actually different classes of people in Ethereum. And I see that very clearly because you have early Ethereans, such as Vitalik and Joe Lubin, who bought the pre-sale. And so Ethereum, actually 77% of Ethereum in circulation today was pre-mined and given to insiders. And if you analyze the distribution, I think there's an argument to be made that maybe five people own 77% of Ethereum or did at the beginning. Like it's really, really concentrated. So it's interesting that Vitalik suddenly expresses all these cold feet when Ethereum finally is moving towards this proof of stake, which is really interesting because proof of stake favors incumbents. It favors people who own a lot of Ethereum. And frankly, we don't really understand the game theory of proof of stake in a really big network like Ethereum. We think it doesn't work because it doesn't really work on smaller implementations of proof of stake networks, which you would think would be easier. So I see this as a good time to get, get out because this thing could totally blow up. And not to be a doomsayer, people have been predicting the end of Ethereum for a long time, but they're trying to do something really, really difficult transferring to proof of stake. And 
it doesn't really solve any real problems because proof of work works as a consensus mechanism. What proof of stake does is it just gives new coins to people with lots of coins as opposed to to miners. It's just cutting out the working class of Ethereum. This is the maneuver that every second tier technology platform pulls to try to compete with the clear market dom leader. And the maneuver I'm talking about is they're making a political change, right? They're essentially locking in a ruling class because you have to be rich in Ethereum to be a valid. You have to be one of these members. And like you just said, 77% of folks received Ethereum. Would you say the distribution of Ethereum was 77% before it even went public, got distributed to a core group of people? That's remarkable. I I, I wasn't aware of that. 100% of Ethereum was pre-mined, but then they had new Ethereum printed with every block to reward miners. And then they then what's funny is they actually reduced the block reward or the block subsidy from, I think, five Ethereum to three Ethereum randomly. They just did that in like, I want to say 2017, 2018, because these big holders were like, hey, we're getting diluted. Let's uh, let's lean on the devs. And because Joe Lubin controls consensus and Vitalik has a lot of sway, there was some shadowy call like a video call with a bunch of Ethereum devs. And they were like, oh, hey, FYI, we're changing the monetary policy, which is crazy. Like if you tried to change the monetary policy in Bitcoin, you would be forked out. No one would accept that. But in Ethereum, because they have a ruling class of insiders and developers, they were able to push that through. Remarkable. Wow. Boy, the more I learn, the more I learn about Ethereum, the the more I, I just I, I just can't even believe it. I, 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 however, am more cynical than you. I believe this is just a savvy change. Proof of stake allows them to be the fat-free, no-sugar crypto alternative, right? They are the no-guilt crypto platform that you can sell to investors, you can sell on television. There's no guilt talking about it on CNBC because it's proof of stake, which is green, don't you know? And um, that, I think, is a very, very sellable idea. So I, I don't think the transitions, it, it may be rocky as hell, but everybody that's in right now has an interest in making this work. And then the, the I think, brand boost Ethereum will get once it's settled, is uh, going to be un- it's going to be unbeatable for a while. It's gonna it's gonna keep Ethereum around for a decade at least. It's gonna be a huge narrative because every single week we see multiple attacks on Bitcoin now uh, around energy fud. You could you know and you know this is true. We could literally do a podcast dedicated just to responding to energy fud. Every- so it's gonna be a huge sell for proof. Of- that's gonna be a huge seller for proof of stake. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say when we have a podcast network, we can have a monthly energy show for masochists who just want to feel like really outraged. Yeah, I don't know. I think you could do it more than every month, man, although you'd have a hell of a show. <laughs> Sorry, I, I I meant weekly. I meant weekly. Weekly outrage, of course. You could, you could. So you just, you see what I'm saying, though? Like, I think that's such an upshot sale for Ethereum that I think it's actually, I think it's going to draw a lot of Wall Street types in. And they love Ethereum already and all the derivatives. I mean, it's so fun for them. I never thought that I would end up being the non-cynical one. That was a real switcheroo. Wow. But I hear you. (laughs) There's no real technical reason to do proof of stake because, you know, FYI, it doesn't really work. And it actually incorporates some proof of work inside of any proof of stake consensus mechanism because you can do all these clever tricks. If you happen to win validator of the next block, you can create an alternative blockchain history and become the validator forever because suddenly you have all the blocks or something. I mean, there are all these wild attacks you can do with proof of stake, which are crazy 
because it, it doesn't really work. And so they actually have to build in checkpoints and proof of work to make proof of stake work. The other thing this bear market's made me think about and remember, like with the Luna situation, is it's an adversarial market out there. If so, if there is an attack vector that just requires putting together some capital, it's exploitable. And I think the, the destruction of UST and Luna shows us that. And I, I just wonder, like you just pointed out, the market of the entire the entire market cap of the crypto market is is under two trillion right now, especially especially right now. Would it be impossible for an attacker to put enough money together to just buy a huge chunk of of, of Ethereum? I I wouldn't think so, right? Um, its market cap right now is two hundred and thirty nine billion. So it, it it's it's a that you know you somebody could put that money together. Well. I think that there is an argument that if you were trying to just buy it up in OTC and open market operations, you squeeze the price really high. But the thing is, you don't need to do that because the major validators are going to be exchanges that most people hold their Ethereum on or these third party validation services like the one we covered. What is it called? Like Lupa or something. They create this derivative called STETH so that you can stake your ETH, but then there's no drawback because you get this other token that's just like ETH. You know, it, it even breaks the assumptions around the cost of staking. But these big third parties are going to be super easy to regulate. So moving to proof of stake is basically saying, yeah, we don't think that any government will ever really get very adversarial with us because, you know, obviously they could just regulate the literally regulated custodians that are doing all the staking and then they would control the network. I think, again, you're the optimist here. It's going to be Coinbase. It's going to be FTX. It's going to be Binance, right? Do you like these companies? Because the more I learn about them, the less I like. But I think you're being the optimist here. If you read that Vitalik thread, which we'll have linked in the notes, he says in there that he would prefer to work with the government. I believe that's the idea. The whole entire idea is to essentially make it complicit with the system by handing it over to these centralized exchanges and whatnot. Uh, that is, I mean, this, Vitalik's a smart man. And you essentially, it's like, it's like taking, it's like making Ethereum a, a public company now because <laughs> it's going to be all of these public companies are going to be the the massive holders. They're going to be the big validators and the stakers, and they're going to get they're going to get the thumb of the U.S. government on them. So it's essentially now Ethereum will be subject to the policy of public companies. And it, I, I got to figure that's baked in because he's a clever man. He knows the knock on effects of this stuff. I think it's hard to control once you get something like this going. So I think it's just spinning out of control, frankly. Maybe. Yeah. You know, this is a kind of a rough analogy, but just a brief one. We have seen we have seen enormous sacrifices on a technical level by technology companies just to get into the market and win. Um, Google made a massive sacrifice with Android. Not only did they capitulate to all of the carrier's demands, which Apple did not, but they also went with an underlying technology that was massively inefficient for mobile device. They've made they've made great strides, but early on, they paid a huge penalty for going with Java. And they intentionally knew they were possibly going to run afoul of copyright law, and they ended up in court for a decade over it. Spent millions of dollars defending themselves, and they and they even had emails that got leaked internally where they acknowledged these were the risks they were taking, 
and they they knew Java wasn't the right technology, but they had to get something out there, and they needed something that a lot of developers knew how to write for. And in the early aughts and late 90s, Java was huge on servers. And so they made a technical sacrifice. They went with something that was substandard that would make all of their devices underperform, which was a big deal on these old mobile devices, because the strategy meant they could get something out in the market that developers knew how to write for right away, and they would get adoption by corporate developers. So they made a huge sacrifice that has held Android down forever, that has made it a worse platform, that makes it run worse than iPhones, and they did it just to get a market advantage. And I think that's the decision. I think that was the math that Ethereum is doing because they know what, what kind of a competitor Bitcoin is. This was the only route they had. And in doing so, they're handing it over to these public companies. Wow, I did not know that about Java and Android. That's really interesting. But I see the parallel because what happens is you make a whole bunch of short-term fixes and then you're stuck with them forever. And you can see that in the way that Ethereum node software is just a hot mess of garbage. It's not something you can run on a Raspberry Pi. You need a pretty serious server to run a Ethereum node. And frankly, Ethereum has even changed their language. Like it's hard to describe what a full node is because they've made it complicated to hide the fact that Ethereum nodes are hard to run and are unstable. And so if you can sort of generalize their development culture to their political culture. I see a group that is short-term optimizing themselves into a corner, and now they're doing a Hail Mary for proof of stake because it'll solve everything. And I think as anyone who's a technological realist will tell you, there is no technological silver bullet. Technology is built on trade-offs, and Ethereum has tried to avoid making those trade-offs. And I think that's a great way to eventually get something that just doesn't work. Yes, very much so. And I think something that people should be aware of that I've begun noticing is there is going to be a great gaslighting of the public on this topic. You're seeing it already from Brian Armstrong of Coinbase, Sam from FTX. You're seeing it from the folks at Cloudflare this week. There is so much money for them to get in on this proof of stake game. And they missed the boat on mining or they couldn't do mining. That wasn't their business. But shops like FTX and Cloudflare, they got server infrastructure to burn. And so they're launching these massive proof of stake operations and they are wrapping it in environmentalism and <laughs> they're wrapping it in what we've, I guess, nicknamed environmental LARPing is what they're doing. They're proclaiming that they are embracing proof of stake for the environment when in reality it's because it's something they can easily line their own pockets. And because of the massive infrastructure requirements of Ethereum, they have a home field advantage at Cloudflare and Coinbase and FTX. So you have places like, you know, Sam and Brian, those those individuals, those CEOs who have become immeasurably wealthy, just ridiculous kinds of wealthy from Bitcoin and by running casinos for altcoins. And they are foaming at the mouth for the opportunity now with proof of stake. Right. And these are all people with zero credibility. I mean, Brian Armstrong is basically on the wrong side of every decision in the history of Bitcoin. This is a guy who bought a surveillance hacking company that did business with authoritarian regimes to hack the stuff of activists and journalists so that they could be murdered and thrown in jail and tortured. Okay. He saw a company that basically could probably be prosecuted for war crimes if, you know, the world cared about that kind of thing. And Brian Armstrong thought, hey, you know, these guys have a bad reputation. That probably means I could buy them cheap. And he bought them and turned them into Coinbase's blockchain analytics offering. So this guy, this is a guy with zero morals, zero principles, who 
monetizes his users at every opportunity. And Sam Bankenfried, I mean, there's audio of him describing these various tokens on his FTX exchange, and he's literally describing Ponzi schemes. Someone says, how does this thing work, Sam? And Sam's like, here, let me describe a Ponzi scheme. This is how it works. So I understand that Sam is kind of a likable figure because he's an under 30 billionaire and he's a big schlub and he, you know, sleeps in the office. He always looks like very disheveled. At the same time, he's making very billionaire decisions. He's treating his customers as if they're just resources to be exploited. Because if you put altcoins on your platform, you are exploiting people. You are taking a bunch of garbage, you're putting it right next to Bitcoin, and you're kind of implying, hey, this Bitcoin thing looks a little pricey, but why don't you try this, you know, XYZ altcoin, Luna? Why don't you try Luna? That, uh, that might perform. These are people with zero credibility, and they're all piling into proof of stake. I think that kind of says something. Now, I brought up Brian Armstrong's hacking group because they show up in this month in Bitcoin privacy. And what's funny is they basically say, hey, you know, uh, this whole blockchain analytics thing where we're saying we can track all the drug money and, you know, track all the users and control everyone in society with blockchain analytics. Yeah, it turns out it's more art than science. So the joke is that this sort of surveillance panopticon it doesn't even really work. You know, it's it's mostly a uh, a show. You know, the, the, the goal is to convince everyone that they're they're being surveilled and controlled so that they should just self-report. I thought that was kind of amusing. <laughs> that is. And it fits right in with the rest of the industry, doesn't it? The whole surveillance industry really is just awful. Right. Let's just double down on mass surveillance before we move to something positive, because the European Union is basically going to ban private encryption. Why do you think they're going to do that? Is it save the children or against terrorism? <laughs> yeah, of course it's for the children. Someone has to it's think of the, the children. children, Dad. The children, <laughs> yeah. They make this argument that there is apparently some online grooming to take advantage of children. Obviously despicable, nasty behavior. But does it justify removing all privacy from every European citizen? I would say no, because you've got this bad thing that's happening, obviously abusing children, very bad. At the same time, what are the numbers? Exactly how big and widespread and serious a phenomenon is this? And, you know, no one can provide any numbers. On the other hand, we know that if you take privacy away from everybody, you render them naked in front of their government. You render them vulnerable to any sort of unjust, crazy policy. So you essentially break democracy. We can't have a civil society when that civil society cannot talk without being overheard by those in power. It just can't happen. That's how the Soviet Union operated. That's how insert name of totalitarian regime operated. You don't have healthy societies without privacy. History doesn't show us a single society where you have outlawed privacy and you get good politics and good outcomes. It just doesn't exist. This is where I go back to why the anti-seizure properties of Bitcoin are so important to me, because I've seen this coming for a while and I've thought for a long time, like, you know, the, my, my day job is the Jupiter Broadcasting Podcast and we mostly focus on, well, Linux and free software. And I have worried for a couple of years now, there will come a day when free software developers are put in a position where they are ordered by a government, a big Western government, that they have to build in a backdoor or they have to disable encryption for a certain region. And I could see them refusing and I could see my podcast supporting them 
in that uh, effort. And I could see us linking to the versions of the software that support encryption. And, you know, you go another couple of years down the road, maybe the United States government does a similar thing. And now all of a sudden, you know, I'm enabling bad actors, right? I've, I'm facilitating something that the United States government would like to prevent. You know, it these things move. And while maybe today I'm totally in the clear, you know, we can recommend and support people using encryption all day long, but maybe that changes in two, three years. Maybe that changes in a year. And then all of a sudden it becomes really important that I have sovereignty over my finances. You know, the lightning network and people people being able to boost becomes really important because I'm not going to compromise on those values. And so I'm not moving, but the world around me does shift. And so that's where, you know, being able to have my Bitcoin in my own wallet off offline, uh, being able to have the lightning network where people can support us over boosts, it it's going to make a big difference as these things begin to shift. And um, there, we're going to have a divide in people who understand these techno technological issues, including cryptocurrency and encryption, and people who don't. And the people who don't are going to be a lot worse off. Agreed. And I included this story because it dovetails nicely with the very tragic news in the U.S. of a hate crime in New York in which a, well, I don't know how to describe it. This super racist dude just murdered a whole bunch of black people, essentially. And he planned his crime on Discord. Now, I think that our overseas listeners, of which we have several, are always shaking their heads and saying, gosh, United States, you seem to have a lot of guns. Maybe those guns are a problem here. But because the U.S. can't really solve gun control and that's just not a problem that this political establishment wants to deal with. What happens is the communications platforms that people who commit these crimes are involved in get put under pressure to, quote unquote, do something about it. And because this murderer was discussing their plans on Discord, Discord is talking about changing their moderation policies. Now, Discord cosplays as a server provider. You can get a, quote unquote, Discord server. But it's not really a server. It's not really under your control. It's just this channel that Discord lets you do some basic management in. And they can see all the messages. They generally apparently do not read most messages, but they can. And they will if messages are reported. But as a result of this latest mass shooting, they're now considering adding some sort of mass surveillance, AI scanning of messages. Now, this is kind of how surveillance happens. There's often a catalyst often a real tragedy. And this tragedy is so horrific that you're sort of given this choice, which is you can either do nothing and support more of these terrible tragedies happening, or you can give away some privacy, give away some rights. This is how the Department of Homeland Security was formed, which is a, another huge constitutional disaster in this country. And I think that we all know how this is going to work out. Discord is going to do more moderation. And over time, who knows what this moderation policy is going to look like. Clearly, they're going to target racist and violent rhetoric, but maybe cryptocurrencies are also violent because they use energy and wasting energy on proof of work is violence to the environment. Who the heck knows? Right. Or doesn't it just take one financial collapse in one Western country and they blame it on, you know, crypto as the cause of a collapse? And then all of a sudden, you know, it's it's extremely toxic to be talking about crypto. Doesn't take, you know, just takes a shift in what's happening in current events. They organized the Ponzi scheme on Discord. Why didn't Discord do anything? Maybe they're liable. So I think that this is a PSA to look at technologies like Matrix, like Mumble, ways to self-host your own 
communities because I'm in no way advocating hate or anything negative, but I think that it is healthier to have smaller, more fragmented communities that have a their own rules and policies and values. And I use the JB cryptocurrency chat as an example. I mean, this is one of the most engaging and healthy online communities I've ever been a part of. And I think that part of that is because it lives in Matrix. It lives on Chris's server. There's just uh, there's just something different about that. And I think it's very positive. Yeah, in so many ways, online communities just are, they really are great at around a thousand and less people. And then when you get over the thousand threshold, it gets a little tricky. And I think that's where the whole matrix and federated approach is really slick and kind of what I'm starting to understand more about Mastodon now as well, because uh, I've never really been into Mastodon until I started interacting with the podcasting 2.0 crew. And they have a Mastodon set up kind of specifically to talk about that stuff with everybody in the community who's movers and shakers. And so that's generally what all of the posts are about. And it's it's my favorite social network that I'm a member of right now. And I think the same thing happens with Matrix. You know, we get we get several hundred people in that Bitcoin chat room. And uh, basically everybody's there because they want to have an actual conversation, not because they feel like yelling at people. And it works really well because you can be on a different server. You could be on a Matrix.org server. You could be on your own home server. But you could still pop into our room. And that system is so slick. Yeah, it's just fantastic. And I'm sorry to bum everyone out with these terrible stories. Unfortunately... I think that they're really going to affect privacy in the near term. So it's important to engage with these problems and have a plan. And actually, Janine links to a great article about starting your local trading group. A matrix channel or matrix server can be spun up. You can do this in a pretty private way, I think, depending on who you choose as your host. I know there are some hosts that you can pay with Monero or Bitcoin if you want to completely disassociate it with your you know, legal name or something. And you can create a community to trade in and out of fiat and cryptocurrency peer to peer. And you can have rules. You can only invite people you know. There's some, some guidelines in this article. I think it's a great idea because the weak point in Bitcoin is exchanges and people not taking self-custody and their transactions being surveilled and KYC'd. So if you do this peer to peer, you're kind of solving most of the problem, in my opinion. I have just always daydreamed about doing this at meetups, somehow facilitating it with our phone and maybe the JB uh, Lightning node. Back in my day, back in the Linux days, uh, when you go to a, a Linux users group or a Linux fest type conference, there was always a key exchange. It was often like a room and it was dedicated to going in there and sharing your GPG key with people in person. So that way there was, you know, obvious validation it was you. And it was like a common practice. And I feel like we could do that today, but with crypto, where people could exchange crypto, buy crypto, sell crypto in person, peer to peer. And it should totally be facilitated by apps. I, I imagine that's just an implementation detail. In fact, if anybody has any idea for apps that could facilitate like an in-person P2P trade, boost it into the show because I would love to know. I'd try it out. Meetups, you say, because I've heard that there is a Bitcoin meetup in Seattle next week. Really? Hmm. Boy, that would be interesting to see. Are you thinking about going? Yes, indeed. I think I will go. It's on next Monday, the 23rd, and it's called... So actually, it's only in two days. Wow. Okay. That snuck up fast. Probably should have uh, mentioned this earlier, but there is a group called the Seattle Bitcoin Devs, or 
I think the tech, the actual name is Seattle Bitcoin, but they focus on technical talks on Bitcoin. And so the next meetup is going to focus on MuSig2, which is a way of doing Schnorr multi-signatures. So it's a very technical talk, but even if you're not a super high-level cryptographer or Bitcoin developer, I suggest going because these talks are very short and concise. And there's a lot of talk afterwards. And, you know, there is probably going to be an opportunity to do peer-to-peer exchange. And that's a really good thing to have in your back pocket, because if you know a bunch of people that you met in person at a meetup, you know, you can kind of trust them a little maybe. So you could always meet up some other time if you need to do an exchange and just, you can even do it in a bank, you know, meet in a bank or something, some very public place. And they've got their Bitcoin on their phone. You, you do the transfer on the phone. When you get a confirmation, someone hands someone some cash. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty chill. You know, this is how people did business for thousands of years. It's only recently that we started having Visa and banks handle all our transactions for us. Very good point. We've managed to make it work. I, I did find them. If someone listening is interested, it's meetup.com slash CBTC. That's S-E-A-B-T-C. And uh, man, I, I, oh, I want to go. I got to check. I got to check to see how doable that would be. That That is, I was just thinking about Bitcoin meetups recently. And, you know, just about every JB meetup in the last year has usually had a group talking Bitcoin um, and always kind of, you know, some some long timers have been in, into it for a while. It's always low key and casual, but it, it comes up. I can only imagine if the whole meetup was about Bitcoin. Glorious. Yeah. So I think that's going to be a really interesting event. So if you're in the Pacific Northwest area, feel free to... Yeah, go. Or I think you can ask questions to the group. You can also ping me on Twitter or in the Matrix channel to uh, if you have any questions. Yeah. So what should we do next? Should we talk about this top 10 coin chart or is it too much of a break? Maybe we have to move away from Hmm. Yeah. I feel like it kind of explains itself. Wow. 73 coins have appeared and fallen out of the top 10. They averaged top 10 status for 50 weeks. Good old Litecoin hanging in, though. <laughs> well, no, uh, Litecoin hung in and then fell out. Yeah, and, and never... Then, like, you know, moved to obscurity. And it's really interesting because they've done some interesting things. Like, they added a uh, Mimblewimble extension blocks. So they've done all this kind of cool development. But at the end of the day, if it's not Bitcoin, it just doesn't really matter. You know, since we're just going to talk about Litecoin just for a second, because I don't know if it'll ever come up again on the show. I feel like someone could do a case study on Litecoin because it's fascinating, right? I have heard from listeners who are day traders who love Litecoin because it's fairly stable as far as crypto prices go and the fees are super low. And because it's so old, so many exchanges and and all these other platforms have support for it. So it works really well for sending their funds back and forth, which they then convert to other cryptocurrencies. But Litecoin has done interesting things over the years. It's had a really wild founder story where he he pissed off and came back and uh, they've added these privacy features. And yet it really just seems to go nowhere. Oh, and it's had remarkable uptime. It has been in operation for years, right? It has all of these things that everybody always says about a new crypto that seems to give it value. And yet when you play it out over the long term, I think Litecoin shows you that it doesn't matter if it's not Bitcoin. It just eventually fades. It's so interesting. It really could be a case study. Yeah, I think that's a great question to ask when someone brings up a new altcoin. You can say, okay, well, if this altcoin is going to be so good, what about Litecoin? Like, how is this better than Litecoin? Yep. It's, yeah. And you got to be able to answer that because on paper, Litecoin looks pretty great. 
And yet, it just doesn't even matter. It reminds me of, I heard someone talking about Decred. Decred is some other Bitcoin-ish type thing. And, uh, you know, one of the selling points is that it has a really clean code base. Yeah. <laughs> you hear that and you're like, okay, well, you bought the marketing because if a clean code base mattered, Linux would not be eating the world because Linux is a kind of a mess, I think. <laughs> Yeah, and clean by whose standards, right? Somebody who prefers tabs might not think it's clean for some, from somebody who prefers spaces. Um, yeah, I, that's always a funny argument because it's a, it's, it's a very subjective term. There is a topic in here I've been waiting to talk about the entire episode. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's the new energy stuff. You know me. This guy and his energy. If this isn't the biggest issue facing Bitcoin, I don't know what is. If you took out this one ESG issue, I think adoption would be at a whole different level. This may have been the most savvy attack possible. And like most days, I was just having a very pleasant conversation with someone in one of the Matrix chat rooms about Bitcoin's environmental impact. And he was suggesting perhaps that we should stop accepting boosts because of the obvious energy impact of Bitcoin mining. And doesn't matter how many times we talk about it on the show, there's just 1,000 times the volume in the other direction out there. 1,000 times the volume? Yeah. And don't you, I mean, compared to what we're saying, yeah, it just, it's every, every day there's some new report, some new organization, and even like Cloudflare which is an organization I was beginning to respect, you know, they came out with when they announced their new proof of stake service, the entire thing was essentially an environmental attack against proof of work. They talked so much more about the environmental danger and damage, which there's no data to show that. But they that's what they the entire post talked about that and hardly at all about the new service they're launching. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that I agree that altcoins are the real sort of enemy of Bitcoin because they compete for Bitcoin adoption. And since they can't really win on their own merits, they have to, to mislead. I just don't know what to say about the energy FUD, because I think the energy crisis that we're moving into is just going to deepen and deepen. And I think people are going to really have a rough time because while there may be dips in energy demand, because the world is also slipping into recession, the production of new energy is so constrained that I imagine we'll see $7 gas this year and probably $10 gas in the next two years. Because frankly, these prices, inflation adjusted, would be lower than previous energy crises, like in, I want to say, 2007, 2008. Oh, that's depressing. Boy, I tell you, it's, it's, I can't believe how much I'm paying for gas. It's, it's, it's starting to hurt badly. Well, and the thing is, high gas prices were the plan. Like if you want to transition away from fossil fuels, and I agree, we need to transition away from fossil fuels because it's pretty clear that adding a whole bunch more heat absorbing gases to the atmosphere is warming up the planet because, I don't know, all the glaciers are melting and, you know, there are massive wildfires every summer. It's pretty clear that those, those things are related. You have to put in a price signal that, that basically tells people that, hey, this whole gas-based economy thing, it's not really working out. Here's the problem. There isn't really an alternative yet. You know, you can use an electric car, but again, the electrical grid isn't great. There are range issues. There's reliability problems because we don't really know how long electric cars last because there's not a lot of data on them. Repairing battery packs is really dirty and doesn't seem to be possible. So there, I, there seem to be a huge number of drawbacks to like just using an electric car. But here's the thing. The only thing that you can basically electrify at this point is a consumer sedan. An electric truck or 
bus or semi doesn't really work because they're so heavy and the battery has to scale with the size of the vehicle. And so everything just gets really, really heavy. I think it's kind of a rock in the hard place situation. Gas prices kind of have to go up to transition to cleaner sources of fuel and transportation. At the same time, I don't really see what that cleaner option is because electric powered vehicles seem kind of limited because of the weight of the battery, in my opinion. I don't see a solution to the problem. And I think that as the price of energy goes up, people are going to get crazy about ESG FUD and all that stuff, frankly. So I'm very pessimistic on that narrative. I agree. And I think it isn't solved until the vast majority of people feel like Bitcoin has a value because any power use on Bitcoin is a waste if you don't think Bitcoin is valuable. But, you know, I wanted to back up a little bit because I guess I'm the pessimist today. I wonder, too, if there isn't an economic strategy at play when it comes to the price of gas and diesel. Specifically, diesel is outrageous right now, which directly impacts industry, which impacts shipping and all that and has a slowing effect on the economy. I, I, I know it also has an inflationary effect, but when you look at all of the levers that government can pull to slow an economy, to just essentially bring things to a halt, maybe it's certain policies that lead to the, ra the raising price in fuel, which not only sends that, that price signal you're talking about, but also has a slowing effect on the economy because they can, you know, they can raise rates, they can turn off the money printer, but from like a policy standpoint, they don't really have many other levers other than maybe executing on policies that lead to the rice, executing on policies that lead to the ra raising of fuel prices. I, it could be. I mean, I know that's very cynical of me, but I wonder if it isn't part of an overall like, well, it's good for the price signal aspect of the economy and it's good to help slow the economy's uh, out of control, you know. Uh, growth. I view that as a rosy picture because it implies that the politicians in charge of the United States have a plan. And I just don't think that's True. the case. True. I think that yeah, that's a fair point. I just think that short term incentives, general chaos and, you know, paying the cost of, you know, long policies that have really racked up a lot of economic damage are going to confound progress. And I think that it's sort of baked in that there's going to be rough downturns, rough problems of energy and probably food on a global level. And I think it's kind of on people to try to hold their representatives accountable. You know, this is why in the past I've written into the Biden administration about the uh, crypto bill, the executive order. There was a comment period. Um, I think it's important to take every opportunity you have to express your concerns, because even though this political establishment has a lot, a lot of problems, I think that there are many people who are involved who are not cynical, who genuinely want to understand people's concerns and would like help doing that. So if you reach out and try to communicate with your congressional representative, more often than not, I've received very nice responses that suggest that they actually did read the letter and found it helpful. That's encouraging. Um, yeah, I guess I, I should not give up on that. That's a fair point. I think and I do think it is maybe one of the defining issues of our time as we roll into summer. I mean, literally our time, right? As we roll into summer right now, the Texas grid is struggling already. We're not even in full-blown summer yet. They're not even up to full temperatures. But they've had uh, several plants go offline already. Six of their power generation facilities went off. And as a result, they're struggling. And Tesla 
is sending out push notifications to Tesla owners in Texas, asking them to avoid charging during 3 p.m. and 8 p.m. because they're having issues statewide. And now the remarkable thing about this is you got to figure what the Tesla penetration in Texas couldn't maybe maybe it's five, 10 percent of all cars sold, maybe. Right. And the stated goal of the Biden administration is a 20x increase in electric car adoption. And so the conversation currently goes to Bitcoin mining, but this problem is so much bigger than Bitcoin. So that's, you know, that's why I, I like I always keep an eye on the Cambridge Analytica stuff. I know you spotted a, a change in how they collect their stats. I mean, nothing too major in here jumped out at me, but there was this shift they did in the calculation of the lifetime of a Bitcoin mining machine to just be five years now. They say after five years, these Bitcoin mining machines are no longer usable, which I don't think that's going to affect the calculation positively long term, because that's that's to me, that's that's totally inaccurate. So, I think you know, we don't have great measurements on this, but I keep an eye on it. And Bitcoin's power usage is still, you know, it's it's less than tumble dryers. It's less than Christmas lights. It's significantly, substantially less than air conditioners. Um, you know, it's about as it's it's about in the ballpark of fridges in the United States. And it's at an all-time high, which speaks to the health of the network. If Bitcoin was failing in this price fall, you would see miners bailing out and you would see hash rate dropping and the network slowing down. That's just not happening. Another interesting thing about this mining data is I think that we consider Texas to be the center of American Bitcoin mining, but actually it's Georgia. There's apparently some nuclear power facilities in Georgia that have power arrangements with Bitcoin miners. And so there's a huge amount of hash rate there, which surprised me. Just looking at a couple of the numbers here, I was surprised to see New York coming in at, what is that, 9.9 or 9.8% of the hash rate? California, 7.9. I bet you a lot of that's on solar. That's pretty good. And then Texas has a pretty strong second place at 11.2%. But you know, Georgia's way ahead. We got to do a meetup down in Georgia sometime, I think. There's probably a lot of Bitcoiners down there. Who knew? I recall that Core Scientific's first mining facility was, I think, in Georgia, because there's a lot of old industrial infrastructure that has basically been shipped. The companies have moved to China, but there's still the power hookups and everything. So they moved into some old like paper mill or something, weaving facility that had like the the electrical connections to power a lot of miners. Uh, that makes sense. And I thought it was interesting because Florida likes to position or Flor Florida, I guess, really Miami. Miami likes to position itself as sort of a Bitcoin capital of the United States. Uh, but they're they're only clocking in at 0.8 percent there in the state of Florida. I don't know about that. I guess I always assume that those hot states like Hawaii and Florida are just like burning oil or coal or something, because, you know, what is their local energy mix look like? I just imagine power is very expensive there. I, I think they burn just the just coral. I think they just harvest coral from the ocean and burn it down there. <laughs> I hope you're joking but I could believe it. <laughs> Maybe so. Although, you know, what's amazing is these uh, Bitcoin mining operations, these portable ones that, that run off the methane off-gassing, they have built these things to run in these super hot Texas desert areas. And they've built these awesome hot, cold channel systems in there where you can actually walk inside one of these crate Bitcoin mining operations. It's just like right there with the sun beating down on it at, at some oil factory, some oil plant. Uh, what am I? Uh, refinery. That's the word. You can walk right inside these things and it's pleasant. 
it's it's like a cool atmosphere in there. And they have hundreds of miners there running off of the methane off gas right there in the Texas desert. They've really they've nailed this technology. OK, I looked it up. Do you want to guess what the number one energy source in Florida in 2021 was for electricity generation? Um, hmm. Let's see. Um, boy, you'd think they get a lot of wind and a lot of solar, but I'm going to guess it's coal. Close enough. Nat gas, 78% oh, natural yeah. gas, 12% nuclear, 10% solar. So that looks like a very expensive energy mix to me because the natural gas is just going up in price a lot. So unless you could park your miner next to that nuclear facility they've got, I think you'd have a rough time breaking even down there. That's got to be it. I think you nailed it. Well, let's mention that this episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by my podcast, The Self-Hosted Show. I do with my buddy Alex over at Jupiter Broadcasting. The Self-Hosted Show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure, getting sovereign with your own data and your own devices. And, uh, you know, everything from your own media server. I love home automation. Uh, I talk a little bit about how, well, a little bit. <laughs> I talk a lot about how I've automated my RV, which I couldn't. I couldn't live in the RV without it. When I'm at the studio, which even the studio has some automations, I feel like it's it's a dumb house. It's just it's it is so awesome what I've set up, and we document that in self-hosted. My buddy Alex, of course, is also an expert in all of this stuff, and he documents his journey as well. so. You can go find it at selfhosted.show. I know that the dad sometimes tunes in. I certainly do. I listen to it on my favorite podcast app, which is Fountain.fm right now. So I just searched for self-hosted show. And I stream some sets listening to two very handsome gentlemen. I think the rule is you have to be a 10 to get on that show. <laughs> yeah, we definitely check. You know, it's like when you go to get on a ride, you got to be this tall. Right. You have to be like this hot to talk about your home Linux servers. Yeah, it's a real process. Sometimes, you know, we have hours of debate before we can even start recording. But man, is it worth it for that audio show? I actually got some feedback that... There are listeners out there who doubt the existence of the fabled Lady Jupiter RV. They've really? never seen it. Yeah, they've never seen it. Yeah, well, they should come to a meetup then, I'm just saying. Um, there may be a YouTube channel out there with my name on it that does have some uh, RV adventures, but I, I, I don't like recommending my old stuff, so I, can no, I cannot confirm nor deny those rumors. Also, also, she's way more teched out than she was in those videos now. Well, there might be a crossover you know, I imagine the mobile Bitcoin node. Definitely. And there, there's likely going to be like a Bitcoin node in there and also a fair amount of uh, uh, cryptocurrency, perhaps, perhaps Bitcoin even you know, on that RV. I mean, I, I don't know, but it's possible. It's possible one day the cryptocurrency on that RV could be worth more than the RV itself. <laughs> As <laughs> we explained, know. though, last week, your Bitcoins don't live in your wallet. Your wallet controls the key that can access the Bitcoin address on the Bitcoin blockchain. So semantics. It's true. And uh, because I've tattooed the seed word to the back of my arm here, uh, I can just recover that anywhere I go. And also never wear t-shirts. Yeah, that's the downside. Yeah. So I'm going to have to get a tattoo that covers up the seed phrase. But will you get it from like a blind tattoo artist? Maybe I'll just get a QR code. That'd be a lot easier. That way I don't have to like, that's what I should have done. I should have just gotten a QR. Dang it. Learn about QR codes and more at the self-hosted show. That's right. Self-hosted.show. <laughs> or let's search for self-hosted in your podcast app. Now, for this episode of Bitcoin Education, we are going to focus on the 200th edition of Bitcoin Optech. 
For those of you who may not have enjoyed this publication in the past, Bitcoin Optech is a newsletter that summarizes the discussions in the Bitcoin developer mailing list. Now, this can be a little intimidating because this is very technical conversation. It took me about four years of Bitcoin before I felt confident enough to peek at it sometimes, but now I read it every week and there's a lot I don't understand, but I can kind of see the, the broad shape of the debate and I find this really, really helpful. This week, there is an interesting debate around whether or not a new, actually an old opcode called opcat cat will be familiar to our Linux users because it's a command that lists things. But apparently this simple command that simply lists things might be able to combine with other opcodes in Bitcoin to create recursive covenants. Now that seems, I, I mean, I'm, I'm having a hard time following that, but that seems like one of those solutions that uses something fairly simple to accomplish something rather complex. Exactly. Basically, recursive covenants came into the discussion because Jeremy Rubin submitted a proposal for an opcode called opctv, opcheck template verify. And he wanted to activate this opcode, which would enable covenants, which are a type of address that basically restricts a Bitcoin transaction a little. So this is useful for potentially sharing UTXOs on the blockchain. So it could be a scaling technology. It could also make the Lightning Network work a little bit better, and it might theoretically open up new technologies down the line. Now, there has been a lot of pushback about the way that Jeremy tried to get this activated. I think the consensus was that he was moving too fast. He didn't get enough consensus around it. And I think that Jeremy's proposal is basically dead on arrival. Fortunately, Jeremy's proposal inspired Rusty Russell to propose an alternative implementation of covenants that's more extensible. So that's currently under debate, but the opcat discussion brings to mind the fact that developing software that works is incredibly difficult and it's very complicated understanding how these different functions interact. And so the Bitcoin developer mailing list is having very deep conversations about very basic and fundamental operations. Where over in DeFi land, we have smart contracts, you know, occasionally malfunctioning and burning billions of dollars of value and all of these exploits. It's kind of a wild west over there. And so I think that it's really striking how kind of fundamental and simple the conversation is in Bitcoin versus the unbridled complexity over in altcoin land. Yeah. And you think about that from just what we know about software development in general. And there's some understandings you can come to. Uh, and I think about it from a long-term value standpoint. Which one am I willing to bet has a actual safe store of value long-term? And it's honestly seems pretty simple and straightforward. It's the one that is thinking deeply about doing these things simply, correctly, and effectively, and willing to ask the challenging fundamental questions, not rushing to any one particular improvement or decision and really thinking it through, and then having it adopted through a safe, understood, tried and tested consensus community. Um, that is such a clear, better bet for a long-term store of value. And when people talk about like, what are the intrinsic, fundamental, valuable things about Bitcoin, it's this stuff. I don't know how you put it into a catchy phrase, but it's this stuff that gives Bitcoin intrinsic value over the other things. And not even compared to cryptocurrencies, 
but just compared to other assets. In For sure. And the next segment in Bitcoin Optech is actually about this OPTX proposal, which is Rusty Russell's counter to Jeremy Rubin's basic covenant proposal. I frankly can't make heads or tails of it, but it looks like he's come up with a way to essentially reuse some existing structure in the Bitcoin code base to do this and version it in a way that would allow changing the functionality over time in a controlled way that wouldn't be too surprising or require too many new additions to the code base. So I think this is a win for Bitcoin development because even though Jeremy was not successful in the change that he'd been working on, I don't think it was time wasted, Jeremy, because you inspired other people to respond to your work and to develop things that ultimately might be better. Sorry, I was just assuming that Jeremy is a listener. I think we're at that point where we can make that assumption. Yeah, I would think so. Or I'm sure I'm sure someone near him is a listener and we'll get this. To- hey, speaking of another listener, our favorite Bitcoin billionaire received a pretty favorable sentence this week. Did you hear about that? Who's our favorite Bitcoin billionaire? I, I forget. I think our favorite Bitcoin billionaire is Arthur Hayes, right? Don't we like Arthur Hayes because of his very meme newsletters? That's true. I do love a good newsletter. Okay. I mean, I'll add him to a list of favorites. I feel like we have a few favorites. Well, wait, name another Bitcoin billionaire that isn't a horrible human being. I dare you. Um... Um, <laughs> I know you're tempted to say Peter Thiel, but then you're like, wait, I, I can't say that. <laughs> he seems awful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It, has Sailor done anything that's particularly egregious? Because he started that whole Bitcoin is Hope training foundation where he gives away free training. That seems like a good thing. I think that a lot of people who think that American corporate law is very corrupt have a problem with Sailor because he did some things with MicroStrategy in the uh, dot com bust but well didn't we all (laughs) if only right if only (laughs) yeah yeah i know i don't know though i don't know if that condemns him though as a horrible person i mean a little bit of running afoul of the sec sometimes is uh just what the very creative people do out there (laughs) you know like you look at what he's doing now it's also a very creative solution I, i guess that's essentially also arthur hayes's crime he didn't enforce kyc on his bitcoin mercantile exchange which seems like a victimless crime to me, but he just received a suspended sentence and two years probation, six months of uh, home confinement. I got to say, you know, it kind of pays to be a billionaire. Seems like uh, they don't get uh, rough sentences uh, put down on them, frankly. So he gets to spend six months in some luxury palace he's just purchased in the U.S. Oh, dang. Man, I'm sure he's going to have to, he's going to have to eat ordered takeout food and Ah, oh, what a shame. He doesn't have to be alone. I mean, he can have his chef and everything. But if he's at home for six months, maybe he'll have time to catch up on our podcast and he could always come on the show. Yeah. Or send a boost and let us know when you've gotten to this point. Include the, um, yeah, maybe a, a favorite quote from the show or the name of the next altcoin you're going to pump. Ooh, yeah. Maybe we can get in on that. Well, would that open us up? Because there are they are unregistered securities. We better open up like a shell podcast company, you know, because we don't want to taint the brand. Right. So we we want to probably do it under like a like a knockoff. You know how like luxury car companies will like start cheaper car brands to not taint their main luxury brand. Right. Like I hadn't heard of that. The dad pod. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's how you do it. Right. You, you know, you make your cheaper stuff under a different brand name because you don't want to diminish the dad pod brand. Oh, so we would have like the crypto dad pod and the crypto dad would be just pumping and dumping things and, you know, turning his podcast into a DAO and selling those tokens off and everything. Yeah. I mean, the name needs, needs to be a little more obnoxious. Crypto cranks or like crypto, crypto killers, you know, something really kind of over the top, you know, with a real crazy. Wow. Logo. Wow. You're good at that. Is this your first time? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm just coming up with it. I think we got something here. <laughs> okay. Which brings us to corrections. We don't always have a corrections section of the podcast, but we are blessed with a great listener community that makes us aware of our mistakes. So I believe it was last week. I brought to light a story about Gary Gensler stating that crypto exchanges were trading against their customers. And I agreed with that broad characterization. But a listener pointed out that some exchanges likely aren't, such as Kraken. And they pointed out that Kraken has terrible liquidity, or to be accurate, that Kraken's liquidity could be better. And if they were trading against their customers, there would likely be a lot more liquidity on there. So I made a broad statement. It was probably incorrect. So I just wanted to walk that back. Hmm. Kraken seems to be the name that comes up when I ask people, is there an exchange that isn't evil? Uh, but I don't understand where that characterization comes from. Why are people so comfortable with it? I know it was founded in 2011 by Jesse Powell. Uh, I know he, know he knew the Mt. Gox folks. Um, that's what I recall about it. I know he's gotten a little bit of investment um, over the years. What do you mean the Mt. Gox folks? You mean that Canadian guy who went to jail in Japan afterwards? Um, yeah, he went. He he spent time at the Mount Gox offices after the breach, I think. I think he went to their office and like talked to them about it. I can't remember now because it's all 100 years ago. But I, I do recall that something about to that effect. Oh, like he was working there or like he was no, not just checking so. it out? Yeah, I think so. I think he was just interested in the space. And then I know that also there was like a, some sort of public fight they had with the state of New York that I think they sort of landed on the side of their customers that I think people have given them a lot of respect for. But I'm still not quite sure. Like I, I've I've sort of lost confidence in all of the exchanges over over this, you know, 2022 period. And so I, I just if people know the backstory of Kraken or could send me a, a resource I could read online, I'd, I'd love that feedback. Yeah, I'd love to know more as well. I know that um, another... Notable in the space, Pierre Richard, who wrote the first like Bitcoin core startup script for Windows, he I don't, actually I don't know if it was the first, but he ha he released a Python program that could get Bitcoin core running on Windows very easily. He works at Kraken now, and he also is part of the Nakamoto Institute that hosts a lot of good Bitcoin resources. So. I don't know. I've always thought of him as someone who seemed to kind of have certain Bitcoin values. You know what? I'll have to learn more about that. It's something that I've just started caring about more and more recently, especially with with all of those stupid statements by both Brian and Sam. It's just it's just really been really super disappointing. OK. And I put this in here possibly to start a conversation. Also, possibly because someone was digging at us in uh, one of the Matrix channels. Umbral actually has a security warning in their GitHub repo. And I just wanted to bring that to everyone's attention because we have talked about Umbral on the podcast. It's a way to run a Bitcoin node and a bunch of associated services very easily. But Umbral deploys their software from GitHub and they currently 
don't have a way to, I'm not sure if I have this correct, they don't have a way to sign it in a very authentic way. So it's possible that you could be man in the middle deploying Umbral. Is that basically the idea? They have, well, they have several different disclosures here. Uh, that's what I would call this. And what did you say last week? Uh, perfect can be the enemy of the good. That's what all of these ring to me. In fact, I think it's an extremely good sign that the project themselves uh, acknowledge that these are issues because they say that, you know, they're going to address this stuff before they consider Umbral stable. Here's a couple of things that are in here. Essentially, the security of Umbral depends on the security of the underlying Linux. So it depends on things like any third-party Node.js dependencies. It depends on the Docker Hub images being secure. It depends on your DNS being accurate. Uh, it depends on your local network, your LAN essentially being a friendly environment and not a friendly or not a hostile environment. And it relies on just namespace isolation for process isolation and not something like a VM or a more serious sandboxing or something enforced like SE Linux. Um, that is to say it has the security of basically every Linux system out there, probably most cloud systems. It is not ideal. It could be tightened. But the fact that they recognize these particular issues and that they say that the issues raised above will all be addressed before they do a stable release, I think that is is really a good sign. But it does kind of underscore something that we said initially when we started talking about Umbral, but we kind of just dropped off. And that is, don't put all of your money on your Umbral instance. In fact, maybe even put more broadly, don't put all of your money on something that's connected to the internet if you can, or at least your keys. Remember, these are your keys. And because Umbral is online, because Umbral is connected to Tor, because it does have remote listening services, all of these raise your potential attack surface. And that's the math that you start to have to do when you do take on the responsibility of holding your own keys and self-sovereignty, which you should be doing. And like we said last week, there are sometimes compromises. And if you want to have your own node, which Umbral makes very easy, and we both recommend you do, uh, I, would, I would run Umbral without hesitation. I would not use Umbral to store all of my Bitcoin. I think that would be a disastrous decision. Right. I think that's a good thing to bring into people's mind. Umbral is a hot system. It has over-the-air updates. Over-the-air updates are very convenient for getting new features, but they are fundamentally unsecure because the upstream repository repository could be poisoned and you can't verify that the software hasn't been tampered with if you use the OTA feature. So Umbral is a great way to have a whole bunch of useful, cool Bitcoin stuff. It's not a cold storage solution. You shouldn't put anything on it that if you lost it, it would make a material impact to your life. Yeah, it's a great way to play with some of the coolest apps in the Bitcoin ecosystem. It's a fantastic way to have your own source of truth on the network. You can get involved with Lightning very easily. There's so many great self-hosted services that you can deploy. Uh, they're all just relying on the underlying security of the Linux box. Um, and so that's why, because I've ran my own Linux systems for 20 plus years, that's why I deploy Umbral on top of an Ubuntu LTS base that I manage. And then I run Umbral scripts. I don't actually use like the Umbral image and the Umbral OS. I'm sure it's probably fine. But because I want to have confidence in the underlying security of the box, I've opted to run it on a system I run and manage. And so does that mean that you just have have, say, unattended upgrades installed, you have a firewall installed. Is there anything else you do to secure that box? So that box also runs AppArmor, which is sort of Ubuntu's um, mandatory access control system that prevents any process that I haven't pre-approved from running, from executing. And it's it's fine. You know, it's maybe not as robust as SE Linux, but I think it does a decent job. And then, yeah, I just maintain it. 
I maintain the box, and then I I generally wait a few days to a week after a new Umbral release, and I can still just update Umbral like everyone does through the web UI, because it just uses the scripts on the back end. And that also lets me run other things on that machine besides just what the Umbral stuff is. I don't know if people really should be doing that, but I do, because that's how I like to run my systems. And so for me, it's a nice compromise, but I think it is probably, like like you said, it's you know considered a hot wallet. It's it's something that you want to be comfortable with. Not maybe not comfortable, but you'll survive if it's compromised. Great. Always good to inject some caution into the conversation. And for the record, I think Umbral is a really great project. I was initially skeptical of the security trade-offs, but I think I was letting Perfect be the enemy of the good because it did enable me to experiment with Lightning and get Podcasting 2.0 running on this pod a lot faster than had I done it all on my own. So I really appreciate it. And you know, I'll add this too, Dad, just really quick. It, they keep adding new stuff that just makes it better and better and better all the time. The project is executing on a release schedule, and they are building towards that stable release. And they're they're listening to feedback. I've communicated with the project. I forwarded them some feedback from the Linux Unplugged audience, and they were totally receptive to it. Uh, and they've they've really executed on a plan. So if they say they're going to get to these things, I have faith they eventually will get to these things. And even once they've accomplished everything on that list, which we'll have linked in the show notes, I will continue to treat it exactly the same way I do now. Which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can always get in touch at bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. And you can always send in a boost. But our first piece of feedback from Adam came via email. Hi, Dad and Chris. I've committed to running a full node Electrum server and adding Lightning to it, but I'm wondering if I should put all of this infrastructure on the Tor network. A small discussion of the pros and cons of running this over Tor would be interesting. I've also heard you say that Electrum by default isn't very secure. Is this also true for the version that ships in Tails? It seems like an OPSEC oversight from the Tails team, if so. Love the show, and and once I get this node running, maybe we'll be getting a boost from me instead of an email. Adam. Thanks, Adam. (laughs) I love hearing that. You know, this is a tricky question, I think, because there's complexity using the Tor network, but there's also the advantage that a lot of apps support the Tor network now, like Sparrow and Electrum. They have built-in support for communicating things over Tor. So that does reduce the complexity. I have come to a, a different solution, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. I think it's a great uh, experience to run a node for the first time. In fact, I think that my first node, I used Catan's full node guide, and I believe he does include some resources on getting your node running over Tor. The problem with running Lightning over Tor is that it makes Lightning about half as reliable uh, in terms of channel opens, especially with non-Tor nodes. So that could be a convenience trade-off. I don't see a problem with keeping your entire node behind Tor. I think what that changes is it's possible that your ISP could see traffic on the Bitcoin peer-to-peer port, the 8332. That's the standard port that Bitcoin nodes communicate on. It's possible that your ISP could be spying on you and identify that you're running a Bitcoin node. However, if you're using Tor, they're just going to see a lot of Tor traffic. So I don't know which one is worse or which one you consider to be more private. Tor, you know, who knows what you're doing, but with the plain clear net, they can basically see you're running Bitcoin Core. I, I, I agree with all that. I think the only other thing or just the curveball I'd throw in here is the way I have opted to do it. Something worth considering is something like TailScale. I just put everything on a TailScale network and I communicate to it like it's on my LAN, but it's actually over a mesh TailScale network that's a WireGuard encryption protocol, which I think is tops. Um, and uh, I run that on my node. Yeah. Now, 
we actually didn't say that Electrum wasn't secure by default. What I said is that Electrum isn't private by default because the Electrum wallet client needs to talk to a backend server that runs a database with the indexes of all Bitcoin transactions so that it can look up your wallet balances quickly. Now, most of those servers are run by anonymous entities, and many of them are probably chainalysis companies. So I don't think that Tails has really made a mistake by shipping Electrum. I think that they might consider replacing it with Sparrow because Sparrow is just, in my opinion, a, a better wallet at this point. But as Chris has said before, Electrum comes with Lightning. So that's useful. Very true. Okay, now we have some boosts. Pew, pew. So five days ago, the Golden Dragon sent us a boost from the deep dive starting self-custody and your first wallet. This is a very informative episode. Thank you for this episode split. I hope many people come here and get started because of your podcast. Thank you, Golden Dragon. Very nice. I'm glad to hear people are getting that info. And I'm just, even if we got like maybe 100 people to self-custody or something like that, that'd be huge. Our next boost is from our weekly booster, True Grits, listening to the same episode about self-custody. What do you think about storing your seed phrase on an encrypted USB drive in a safe? This is a method I've used, but we'll definitely rethink this now. I don't know if I disagree. I mean, the nice thing, you could then maybe have multiple copies, but I guess you're just shifting the problem because you'll have to remember the master password for the encryption. So <laughs> you just better make sure you got that somewhere safe. I see it as a problem because you're going to have the USB storage gradually losing charge. And so if you leave that for long enough, you're not going to be able to read the USB, especially if it's a big encrypted blob. Do they degrade like that? I don't know. I don't know. Do they? I mean, I could see it. I could see storage degrading. I don't think USBs are safe for long-term storage. I think it's considered volatile storage. So frankly, I would rather you write it down on paper. And maybe if you're concerned about someone opening the safe, maybe use a multi-sig setup so that if one key is compromised, your stash is still secure. Yeah, that's something we didn't get into last week. But I think if you just get yourself a really, remember, you need your seed phrase, not the individual keys themselves, but just your seed phrase. And then there is the multi-sig solution, which is probably something we could talk about in a future episode as a way to help protect your stash with a multi-sig. Totally. And we have another boost from the Golden Dragon from Stablecoin Alchemy. I think the episode cut off, was listening to the final chapter, and it seemed to drop mid-sentence. Anyway, Great episode and great insights. Thanks for the show. I want to check that. I it's possible dad cut it off. No, this no, you guy. never No, no, it's the CDN. Oh, the CDN must have uh, the oh, cache. It uh, must have gotten poisoned. We uh, got censored. I was about to yeah, reveal yeah. the big conspiracy truth thing. Yeah, the CDN canceled us. <laughs> Our next boost is from Nixer. Oh, I think he or she might like NixOS. Uh-huh. Thanks for the great tips. Love the pod. This was about starting self-custody and your first wallet. And we have another boost from True Grits, who is responding to a question. Yes, Chris, it's true. Wait, he said, I think he wants to say True Grits, but he spelled it Gatitz. That just makes it even more confusing. I'm not going to call him or her True true Gatitz. That's just not what it, that's not happening. <laughs> I used to be Parker G in the mumble room before you moved up to Sundays. Okay. You passed the pronunciation test, so it must be true grits. That was just a, a meta joke by misspelling it there. 
Parker. Parker, you joker. To answer dad's question, I mine on a Ryzen 3700 with 32 gigs of RAM. It's my main machine. I just spin the mining up when I'm not using it. I've been thinking about getting a Raspberry Pi to move my node over to. The cool thing about Monero is they encourage everyone to run their own node for extra privacy. It's a good point. Yeah, they got some good things, I think, in their culture. Over, I think they have people thinking about the right stuff and they reinforce some of the right behaviors, too. I think that's important. Our final boost is from Cass Peeland. And when I saw this name, I thought, gosh, I wonder if this is a nim of Cass Piancy from a uh, that 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 critics podcast. Interesting. I went in a totally different direction with that name. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. like Caspian or something? No, no, no. Different okay. direction. <laughs> okay. Nice show. Found you through JB. Nice to get more Chris. I'm into Bitcoin since October 2021. I got a lot at the all-time high, 69K. I like the crash so I can buy more for less than 30K. Love it. Thanks for the show. Hey, thanks, Caspian. That's great. My son gives me a hard time because uh, this year for Christmas, I bought him a few sats, right? And he loves ribbing me that I basically bought near the high of 2021. Not quite, but it was, I think, I think that when I bought it for him, because I bought it a little bit before Christmas, I want to say it was 49,000 or somewhere around there. So he just loves giving me a hard time about it. Kids, kids. <laughs> and then when every time the price goes down, he sends me a message, Dad, it's time to buy. <laughs> mixed messages, mixed messages. Um, yeah. Kidding. Well, that that's fun. It is. Well, that about covers it for this week. So thanks for listening to the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Saturday, May 21st, 2022. Oh, I've been your Bitcoin Dad, but I just wanted to plug the show notes. We have a link to an infographic of who funds Bitcoin development. It's kind of interesting to look at. Interactive map at that. And it was actually kind of illuminating. An interesting testament to decentralized projects as well. How do, how do they find the show notes, though? That's the key thing. Well, you just look in your podcast app in the notes section, and we have all our show notes in there. Or you can go to bitcoindadpod.com, and there is a link to our podcast episode library. And so you can look up the notes there as well. Pew, pew. And why not get yourself a brand new podcast app that has all kinds of features? I've been trying out Podverse recently. It doesn't have boosts yet, but it has an Android, web, and iOS version, and they all sync, and it supports clips. So there's a bunch of really great apps that support a whole bunch of new standards and boosts at newpodcastapps.com. And we will link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much. I got to say, too, there's a community on Fountain, on the Fountain FM app, and some of them have been clipping and sharing the Bitcoin Dad Pod, too. So thanks to the Fountain users out there that are clipping and sharing. That's pretty cool to come across. Oh, I didn't know that. I'll have to check that out. Well, thank you so much. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Saturday, May 21st. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>